0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creasman.
1: And I'm Ira Creasman.
0: And on this episode, we will begin our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy VI, the game that began it all for the two of us, that it's not an uncommon story, as we talked about in the very first episode of this podcast, so we won't retell the story, but this is the game that... Well, we both fell in love with the series over. It was released in 1994 for the Super Nintendo under the title Final Fantasy III. We've discussed all of that. It was re released again in 1999 for the PlayStation Anthology version, then again in 2006 2007 for the Game Boy Advance. Of course, it was released again in 2015 for the Wii U, and one more time in 2017 for that nifty little SNES classic, which just reminds us how enduring this game has been. If you're going to release a classic edition of the system this game was released for, you must include this game. It was directed by Yoshinori Katase and Hiroyoku Ito, which is interesting because this makes this the first game in the series that was not directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi, who is still... The executive producer on the project and worked through the scenarios, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But it's certainly noteworthy that Katase, who we talked about in the Chrono Trigger episodes, has become one of the most important names in the history of Final Fantasy, as has, by the way, Hiroyoku Ito, the inventor of the active time battle system in Final Fantasy 4 and the job class system in Final Fantasy V. We talked in the very first game about how Sakaguchi, Amano, and Uematsu were sort of the holy trinity of Final Fantasy. As the team grew, Katase and Ito become the next kind of big members of it. So it extends out to really being a core of five in my mind. And there's one more name, obviously, that appears first here, wouldn't really become a major part of that core until the next game. But the artist by, as often, as has always been the case, Yoshitaka Amano. Interestingly enough, uh, a name I'm not that familiar with, though the first name I am, Tetsuya Takahashi, (laughs) and of course some character and monster design work done by Tetsuya Nomura, who had a small role in Final Fantasy VI, but anyone who knows that name knows him as the, and I'm going to use this word, the genius behind the Kingdom Hearts Franchise. Also, the director of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. People know what Tetsuya Nomura is about, I think, at this point. The interesting thing about the way this game was written, and we talked about this a little bit with Chrono Trigger, this should have been a disaster. It's almost shocking to me to learn that this is the way this game was created, was that it was written, at least the scenarios, by different people and i learned this from the resonant arc folks so again shout out to them and thank you for for the research videos but hironobu sakaguchi wrote the scenarios for terra and Locke, yashinori katase for celeste and gao nomura for shadow and setzer and so on and it was katase who was responsible for bringing it all together in a cohesive whole which is pretty much his job at square now like bring the project together into something cohesive and well done <laughs> and as always the music is by nobu uomatsu in 2005 IGN ranked Final Fantasy VI as the 56th greatest game of all time, and it was the second highest ranked Final Fantasy after the fourth installment. In 2006, Nintendo Power ranked it as the 13th of the top 200 games on any Nintendo platform. Also in 2006, the Japanese magazine Famitsu voted it as the 25th best game of all time. In 2008, Final Fantasy VI was number one on G4 TVs. Man, remember G4 TV? Uh, I I remember G4 TV. It it was the number one must-own RPG. Also that year, Screw Attack named Final Fantasy VI the third-best Super Nintendo game of all time. And in 2009, it was inducted into IGN's Video Game Hall of Fame, becoming the second Final Fantasy game to be inducted after the original. Uh, Still messing with their lists, as we know they tend to do, in 2012, IGN ranked it as... Uh, Number one on their list of top role-playing games, and an updated version of their top 100 list in 2007, ranked Final Fantasy VI as the ninth greatest game of all time above all of the other Final Fantasy games. It has been widely celebrated and considered by many game journalists to be one of the greatest games of all time, and it's probably the most popular pick amongst longtime Final Fantasy fans as the best in the series. You could say it's the hipster Final Fantasy fan's favorite game. It's certainly, I've learned there are people who, a younger audience, who gets tired of those of us who did play this game first, talking about how it's the best one that there ever was. And, And you and I are a little less absolute on this is the best and those are, you know, you certainly more than me. But... It is for people who played it, especially when it came out, difficult, I think, to separate the experience of playing this game and what it meant to so many of us at the time, from whatever else, you know, some people might go back and look at it and go, ah, it's a Super Nintendo game, and and, and if you can't get into the older games, it's just not going to speak to you, and that's fine. But. For those of us where this, we played it when this was the single most technologically advanced game in existence. We'd never seen anything like it. And I feel like in some ways we haven't seen anything like it since.
1: While I am in fact reticent to to talk about what I think is the best or, or put things in lists, I will say that I have put more hours into this game than probably any other video game ever. That includes all the hours I put into Super Mario Brothers back in the day, all the hours I put into Duck Hunt, all the hours I put into that track and field game with the pad that we spread out on the floor. Yeah, I put a lot of hours into a lot of different video games over the years. But Final Fantasy VI is the one I come back to. It's the, one, it's the Final Fantasy I have played the most. It is the one that... I know off the top of my head the best.
0: I think because other than the one thing I just mentioned, the technology issue, I don't mean the the inside the game, I mean the meta technology. If you're not into Super Nintendo games then you're not. But if you can get past that's the that's literally the only hurdle for me. To get into this game. The the only other... And I'm, you know, jumping way ahead to our conversations about how we measure this stuff to some degree. But the only flaws I really see... There's some weird translation stuff. And not even that much to me. I don't know that there's such a thing as a perfect video game. Or a perfect story. Or a perfect soundtrack. But if there is... Final Fantasy VI to me is about as close to perfect as you can get or maybe to put it another another way there's there's really nothing wrong or bad about any of this jump into the plot itself we do want to lay some of the big themes out there at the beginning as we so often do and we're not going to limit ourselves to these specific ones if anything else comes up through our conversation which by the way we're going to be talking about final fantasy 6 for several episodes here we're buckle up kids because we're it's going to be a long ride on this particular story and so we'll discuss some other big themes as they come up but the ones that really stuck out to us To begin with, uh, some of the ones revolving around love and nihilism we've seen before, but I think they're explored more interestingly here in Final Fantasy VI. I'm particularly interested in the way it tells its story. It is set up as an opera, which we will see over and over again before we get to the opera within the opera. So we'll talk about a, a number of the unique ways in which it tells its story. As we've discussed before with the Empires and Rebels episode in particular, there are some heavy themes here about machinery versus nature, technology versus nature, Uh, not always versus, sometimes, you know, within each other, uh, helping each other. That's in fact where the word Magitech comes from, and we'll get into the setting of this game and why that's unusual here in just a moment as well. And of course all of the themes that come with the Rebels and Empire's tropes. Final Fantasy XII is oftentimes referred to as the Star Wars Final Fantasy. Uh, I think Final Fantasy VI could also fit pretty heavily into that category. But the two biggest ones, for me anyway, are the religious undertones and even the Maybe not the first time, but maybe the first most direct time, our characters are tasked with killing a god, and we will discuss the ramifications of that uh, throughout. But I think the biggest theme, and honestly, by the end of the game, it's not especially subtle, but that doesn't make it less good, is the role of family and maybe different kinds of definitions of what a family is and should be.
1: So the concept of a found family is not unique to Final Fantasy VI. It's a thing you'll find in a lot of fantasy literature, The the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Those guys became a family of sorts. Um, And you have my axe, like, yeah. Precisely. Uh, The crew of the Firefly, uh, excuse me, the crew of the Serenity in the show Firefly. They become a found family. They don't always get along, right? They, there's some stressors there. There's some personality conflicts. In Final Fantasy VI, we find this to be a fairly strong theme, I think. Particularly because the, the actual families that the characters have are so... Well, let's just run through it, right? Yeah. Terra. We know Terra's mother and father, Madonna and Maduin. Madonna is dead at the beginning of Final Fantasy VI. Maduin is dead at the beginning of Final Fantasy VI. We see some flashbacks of them interacting. Then we have Terra in the world of Ruin. She, she finds a family of orphan children that she wants to take care of. Right. So for her, I, especially if she is the main character, I, I'm not sure she is. But certainly she's the first of the, the main characters we follow. So if the story is, is about her as much as anybody, then I think that strongly underscores this idea of a found family. right? Like the, She is going to take care of these kids. These are her kids now. We don't know much about Locke's birth family, but we do know that he was in love with a woman named Rachel, and it didn't work out. Edgar and Sabin are a pair of brothers, uh, whose father gets sick, possibly poisoned by the Empire, and uh, that breaks up their family. Shadow. Shadow had a good buddy, a brother in thievery, perhaps. Uh, does not work out f- well for that guy, and then, uh, and then he meets a-, a woman on an island and-, and has a daughter, perhaps. We're fairly certain. Gao. Gao's mother gave birth to him. He had some uh, birth defects, I guess, uh, and his father either was crazy or went crazy. Cyan's whole family, and and the family he serves, are poisoned and killed. Celeste, uh, she has a found father in Sid, and I get the impression she considered Leo to be her brother. Yeah. Though it's not that's not as strongly said. I don't think. Doesn't work out well for either of them. Setzer's wife Daryl yeah. wrecks her airship, and as they're racing, Mog. Mog. Maybe this this theme does not stretch through uh, his character as much, but he does. There's that family of Muggles up north. He bosses Umaro around in what I would say is a, a big brotherly kind of way. Strago and Realm, as grandfather and granddaughter, uh, have a strong family theme. Uh, and then realms mother being dead and uh his, her father being gone except maybe he's a ninja now <laughs> so so the only two that i would say don't have a real str- or the only three i would say don't have a real strongly f- strong family theme are mog umaro and gogo we don't know anything about gogo though there is some speculation umaro does not have a whole lot of story to him other than his relationship with mog and Mog's relationships are largely the other Mughals and Umaro. So all of these characters have family who are either gone or, or have uh, died in some capacity or are maybe not, maybe not people we want to look up to. Gao's father, Sid, did some awful things. So that they not only are trying to save the world from the empire and then save the world from this god of madness and nihilism they also find companionship in each other and they don't always get along there's some infighting uh, as brothers and sisters are wont to do sure Uh, but they but they do really come together as a family and that's uh that is i think the strongest the strongest theme of final fantasy VI.
0: I completely agree, and one of the things that drives it home—you touched on it there—was that there arguably is no main character to this game, and it's the only game in the series that has a strong cast of obvious, you know, character archetypes and tropes. Where that's not the case, you've got some of the early games where, as we talked about, you know, blank slates in one and three, so there aren't really main characters there, but in most Final Fantasy games, there's a pretty clear main character that no one would argue. In 4, it's Cecil. In 5, it's Bartz. In 7, it's Cloud. In 8, it's Squall. In 9, it's Zidane. I think you can make a pretty strong argument that ten has dual main protagonists, but still, Tidus and Yuna are quite clearly the driving forces of of everything that happens in that story. 12 gets a little more interesting. I actually think 12 exists much more in this space the, the way that 6 does, where there's you know, there's characters we're introduced to first, and there are some that have a, a bit more bearing on what happens in the plot. But for the most part, they all come into this story in their own way, and they all have their own battles on top of whatever else is going on in the world and fighting against the Empire, and the way they interact with each other... As as you put it, as as found family, is as interesting as anything else that happens in the game. For example, the first time that Celeste and Cyan meet, we'll talk about that when we get there. But those are the kinds of dynamics that I think really set this story apart for me. That every character is given that kind of detail, and you can't tell this story without. Like you mentioned, maybe Margomaro and Gogo, you don't need to tell the story. But the rest, you can't tell, you can't leave anybody else out of this. You just can't.
1: Long ago, the War of the Magi reduced the world to a scorched wasteland, and magic simply ceased to exist. Thousand years have passed. Iron, gunpowder, and steam engines have been rediscovered. High technology reigns. But there are some who would enslave the world by reviving the dread destructive force known as magic. Can it be that those in power are on the verge of repeating a senseless and deadly mistake.
0: Hmm. Did I just get shivers? Yes,
1: I did. I think the answer is quite clearly yes. Yes, yes, they could. Those be. in power are always on the verge of a senseless and deadly mistake.
0: I love that line forever and ever. I <laughs> I can't hear it and not get shivers. It's such a perfect way. That that, that entire introduction, obviously. Uh, but the, the final question posed there about those in power being on the verge of repeating a senseless and deadly mistake. Well done, Ted Woolsey, by the way, who we've given a lot of crap to here and there and who catches a lot of crap. But that is mm, excellent writing. There's a word in there that sticks out to me after the 20th time we've played these games. Can you guess which one it is? Gunpowder. N- <laughs> Rains. rediscovered
1: ah yes okay good choice yeah which which would presume then that a thousand years ago during that war of the magi there was iron gunpowder and steam engines or something along those lines
0: yeah it's interesting because the setting of this game is different from the settings of the five games to come before it right all mostly pure fantasy settings. We've talked about how they're not pure fantasy stories. There's robots and spaceships and stuff gets weird. And there is technology in those games, especially 4. But this just sets us into an industrial revolution. We're going to leave this word for a deeper conversation in the future. I promise we'll get back to it. But this is a steampunk setting, which very briefly simply means that, uh, suggests that back in the day, that technology the steam technology ended up becoming the most prominent in the world as opposed to say fossil fuel type technology and so we've got pretty much everything running on steam power and then you know even though magic doesn't exist that will become a bit of a thing but with the more industrialized setting we've got our first big risk of final fantasy 6 not putting itself into a medieval style land of uh you know kings and and kingdoms and and those types of tropes that we're more used to out of something like Lord of the Rings, where this is, there are trains and there are machines.
1: Maybe part of what you're trying to get at here is steampunk is an idea that is sort of begin science fiction or, or science fiction literature. There's a strong case to be made that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel. I'm fine with that. But also, I think it's worth talking about Jules Verne, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and uh, Around the World in 80 Days, and that, that sort of stuff. And I'm not sure we can say that Jules Verne was you know, specifically steampunk, but it was certainly that kind of aesthetic, that kind of idea that with technology, we can do all manner of things, and they can be largely positive. Now, The War of the Magi and what's about to come next are, are not necessarily largely positive, but it's those ideas upon which science fiction is built and so for a fantasy video game franchise that we're jumping in with the science fiction immediately instead of hiding the robot behind the waterfall is fun and interesting and unique it's
0: i said before i'm not sure there's anything else quite like final fantasy 6 there are lots of video games that have steampunk as a setting but you know it's like we talked about if there are elves and people in, with long beards and big hats who, you know, we call them mages, we're all kind of used to that. We we understand that. We get that right away. But when you put steampunk and fantasy, and it's like 50-50 in this game, the, the fantasy elements are still obviously present. I think it's about as perfect a balance of science fiction and fantasy Probably in any story I know, and because I think that gets at the core of what Final Fantasy is, the mixing of Eastern and Western, the mixing of fantasy and science fiction, I I think Final Fantasy VI sits right at the center of all of those crossroads.
1: During the introduction that I just read, we get glimpses of this world where steam power and gunpowder and iron reign as high technology... And one of the glimpses we get is of the capital city of Vector, which is the capital of the Empire. And we get a a brief, brief glimpse of one of our main characters. The character who will turn out to be the main antagonist of Final Fantasy VI, Kefka. Kefka is dressed in bright greens and reds, and you just barely catch a glimpse of him walking around. And the reason I bring that up before we get into the actual thing that happens is because he is the one who has sent these three on their mission in the final fantasy VI remake that got that cgi intro it is very clear that kefka is the one who is putting these three in their magitek armor and sending them north to get the esper so we start with three characters they are all sitting in riding upon this basically power armor it's not quite iron man level but it's these big bipedal robot creatures, things, with sort of mouths on one end, and they're they're working the controls, and they're sitting on it. It's open air. And it, there are two soldiers clad in this sort of dark brown armor. And the third character, who sits behind them, not saying anything, is a young woman. She's got greenish blonde hair, depending on what you're looking at. She's clad in these... It's not quite robes, but certainly uh, brighter colors than are these soldiers. And we get the wind whistling in the background as they look out over this frozen plain. And they say, there's the town down there. Now I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the, the dialogue in front of me. But they do a little bit of uh, exposition through dialogue. So can you, can you actually believe there's an Esper down there after all this time? And, you know, the, it's our job to get in there and, and see what's going on. And, and uh... They
0: also explain that uh, Tara has the slave crown on her. They, they make it clear that she is not there of her own volition. One of them, by the way, they are introduced as Vix and Wedge in the original Super Nintendo version that right. would later be yeah. changed to Biggs and Wedge, a reference to Star Wars. When, uh, during this conversation... One of them is concerned, you know, is she going to turn on us? Is she going to... They're all afraid of her. They right. make it clear immediately right. they're afraid of her. And the guy says, no, she's got this slave crown. She'll do whatever we tell her to.
1: All right. And uh, then our three characters march north to the the mining town of Narsh. And Terra's theme plays in the background as the credits scroll.
0: Hey, look, we. <laughs>
1: oh man, mood setting. I think
0: shivers again, and we're not even. <laughs> we've barely started. Uh, we never seen anything quite this cinematic in a video game before, with the introduction and the setup, and one scene where characters talk like a cold open, as we've mentioned before, and then credits are rolling as we get this from behind shot of them walking toward the town that slowly, slowly comes into view as they're just really little lights carved out of the side of the mountain. Just perfection.
1: It is perhaps parallel to Final Fantasy I, and you you save the princess, you defeat Garland, and you don't get the, the title card until you cross the bridge. So... It's not quite the same length, but it's a a similar idea. Like, you you jump into the adventure, uh, and then you get the title card.
0: It also just evokes this feeling of we're headed towards something big and important. And we are. Not Narsh, necessarily. I mean, that's where the characters are headed. But we, the audience, are in, in this scene being brought into this world... And you just get the sense of, this is going to be an absolutely epic adventure. And one other note about all of this intro, as I was talking about in our big theme section, is, and we'll leave, as much as I can, I will leave the conversation of music till we get to its own episode, but there is a piece of music called Omen that plays over all of this and then we get that, as you mentioned, a brief bit where there's no music and we just hear the wind sounds as they have their dialogue on top of the mountain. And then it goes into Terra's theme. It's all positioned very similar, even from the way the opening screen when you turn on the game, you get this shot of the sky, the music comes in, it scrolls down, we see Final Fantasy three or Final Fantasy six. It pauses on that, at a climactic moment for the music and then it continues down onto Narsh and then we get our thousand years ago thing and it's all so smooth and seamless a transition but I think very clearly even having that introduction with all of the words it would be like an impresario coming out at the beginning of a story and saying here's what happened here's what's about to happen I give you Final Fantasy VI." Just like
1: so our heroes if we can call them that enter the town of Narsh uh, then they are immediately met with resistance this is basically a little dungeon where uh, all the fights are pre uh, pre-programmed, pre-or- pre-ordained there are no random battles here you will as Biggs, Wedge, and Terra or Biggs, Wedge, and Question Mark I should say Yeah. because we don't have her name yet you will fight against guards who are trying to stop you. Uh, they want to protect the Esper, down with the Empire, all of that sort of thing. It's really interesting that we start with uh, a, a bunch of RPG commands that aren't the ones we will end up using, because you can use your Magitek abilities, and so it's like fire beam, ice beam. Bigs and Wedge only get, I think, fire, ice, and lightning. And and then Terra gets like Bio Blaster or or Bio. She she can cast poison with her, uh, with her Magitek armor, and she can like fire the missiles. And like she's much better at running Magitek armor than these two soldiers are. Absolutely. There you can't go a lot of places. You can't go inside or anything because these machines are just way too big. But you can go around. Like if you explore a little bit, you'll get to fight more hapless townsfolk, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say that. There are soldiers. There are guards here. There are people who know what they're doing. And they they release dogs on you. And they've got like a a tame wild boar. A tame wild boar? They've got a boar that they can set loose on you. But basically you tear through this town. And I I should note that in the CG introduction, it looks like there's a Gatling gun on one of these things. It looks like they're firing bullets at some of these soldiers, some of these guards. Which you don't get, you don't have the option to fire bullets in the uh, battle, when, when you come into a battle, so that that's a bit of a disconnect, but I, I kind of, like it would make sense for them to have guns, because they mentioned gunpowder at the beginning, and uh, clearly later monsters when you that you fight when you're in the Empire, various robots and such, will definitely have guns. Right. So you make your way through town, and you get up into the mines... Eventually, you come upon a monster that the people of Narsh seem to have trained or tamed. It's called the Whelk. It's basically a, a giant snail, and it's it's a similar fight as the fight against the Mist Dragon in Final Fantasy IV, where you can fight it while it's in its full form, but if it withdraws, like for the Mist Dragon, it would it would dissipate into mist, and if you attacked it while it was mist, it would come back with a big counterattack. The Whelk, if you hit it while it's only its shell, it will absorb that energy and then release it in a big blast and so, at the beginning of the fight, either Biggs or Wedge will say, "Oh, remember our briefing, don't attack the shell and then that's how you know how to how to go through the fight
0: It's a fun little reminder, too that these games are a little bit more about strategy than they are say quick fingers and you know, one of the biggest critiques of the video games and Final Fantasy has always been: it's press X to win. You just press X and fight, and you kill the thing. And this is a nice early example of like, no, you can't just do that. And the, the, you'll lose if you do that with Welk. You will lose. You have to know when to attack, and when to defend.
1: Once you defeat the Welk monster, things get eerie, and there's that particular piece of music that plays.
0: Again. <laughs> it's it's so difficult to remove the music from the plot of this game, because like in opera, the musical cues are very important to what happens. So when the song Another World of Beasts begins to play, it is thematically tying us to the espers, to their story, to their world, before we know anything about them, other than that they're called espers, and we've just met our first one that's frozen in this giant block of ice.
1: This Esper is Tritach, or, if you're playing a more recent translation, Balagarmanda. And the only reason I can say that is because I pulled up the Final Fantasy wiki and I have the word right in front of me. (laughs) I really like this as a creature. It eventually shows up in other Final Fantasies, but this was its first appearance, and it's the Fire, Ice, and Lightning phoenix basically and it's really super neat yes it is so the agents of the empire have found the frozen esper and they're going to secure it but suddenly the girl the 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 young woman on the magitek armor begins to approach and the soldiers are like what are you doing
0: one of them says to her is there something you know that we don't as she starts to move toward tritach and I thought of a line from West Wing when the vice president tells Toby the total tonnage of what I know that you don't would stop a team of oxen in its tracks. It's like she doesn't know who she is. She's being completely controlled. She doesn't know what's going on really, but depending on your definition of the word know, maybe maybe what she understands or what she feels. Uh yeah, there's something she knows and feels that you do not.
1: So as she approaches the frozen Esper, one of the soldiers, I can't remember who goes first, but uh, there's this high-pitched noise, almost like a shriek, almost like a metallic sound, Mm -hmm. and he he disappears, possibly to the Millennial Fair, right? (laughs) possibly to the top of the satellite in Final Fantasy VIII.
0: And then the other follows right behind him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, very quickly, the other is also dispatched, and it's only... This young woman and this magical being, and lightning begins to arc between the two of them. There's like an explosion,
0: which is kind of weird and interesting, and Terra collapses. Go to black. When Terra comes to, she is in a bed in a house she obviously wouldn't recognize. She didn't recognize much of anything either. And there's an old man who has clearly been tending to her. And he has very clearly removed the slave crown. She gets out of bed. She's very woozy. She falls a couple of times. She's obviously in a very poor condition. He explains to her that they were controlling her actions through the use of the crown. Uh, she explains to him that she has absolutely no memory of what's going on. Then there's a banging at the door, and it's the soldiers.
1: Those are Nars soldiers, though, not, not Empire soldiers.
0: Correct. Right. They're, they're Nars soldiers who are, who are angry at her. They just want to know where she is and what she's doing. This is the first time we hear her, I think, referred to as a witch okay and and oh I think it's Biggs and Wedge who mentioned earlier on that she fried fifty soldiers oh yeah w- w- yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, in the past at some point,
1: doesn't she tell Arvis that she's able to remember her name?
0: Yeah, that's the first thing she's able to remember, and he's very impressed, like I've never heard of such a fast recovery before. She remembers her name, and then we get this interesting thing that final fantasy six does again very much like a play or an opera might like if you had a program you could look down get yourself a little description of the character but everything goes black around her while her head is down trying to remember her name everything is frozen in time for a minute uh, a moment and we get this bit of Writing, I guess, I guess, again, if the, maybe our impresario person, whoever our narrator is at this point, our, our disembodied narrator explains
1: a mysterious young woman controlled by the Empire and born with the gift of magic. So,
0: for a perfect opportunity to pause and do a character study of Tara, who we'll be learning more and more about throughout, she is. I find mean, it interesting they call her a young woman. She's supposed to be about 18 years old in this story. You mentioned the green hair is an early clue that she's got this gift. But they come straight out and, and tell us here, even though we've got a great scene in a little while where a couple of characters are going to be very surprised by it, they let us know right off the bat she has the gift of magic. Of course, we don't know why. But she is... One of the greatest Final Fantasy characters of all time, I think largely because of her insecurities and her, you know, their amnesia is oftentimes critiqued as this terrible trope and, and a, you know, a trick you can use. If you give your main character, your first character amnesia, you can explain the world to them and that way you can explain the world to your audience. A similar thing happens in Final Fantasy X with Tidus, but it's not really amnesia. They think it is, but it's not. But that's not really how this is used here. Terra is a person who doesn't know who she is literally and figuratively, and she discovers who she is literally throughout the course of this game. But her discovering who she is figuratively is just a beautiful story arc of a person finding themselves.
1: Right. And as we've said, finding her family. Right. Like, she doesn't have a lot of affect in the beginning of, of the book. Of the book. True. <laughs> in the beginning of the game. like She understands what emotions are, but she doesn't know how she's supposed to feel she questions a couple of times what is love how do i know if i love somebody can i even feel love because she's had that slave crown on her head for so long she's lost a lot of who she is and she has to relearn how to feel how to have any sort of emotional intelligence you know how to behave like a human being would i guess
0: right and and so on top and that's what makes her so interesting because we've got all of these very powerful Oftentimes, soldiers, you know, Cecil, Cloud, soldier, <laughs> we'll get into all that, Squall, best in his class, Tidus, superstar athlete. Tara's the most powerful person in the world, but she does not carry herself as such. And she spends the first half of this story really being dragged around by other characters. And to even jump way forward, at some point, she tries to take herself out of the equation. And and I just find that fascinating because, and, and I think there's something to be sp- said about masculine power and feminine power in all of this as well, that she doesn't take the fact that she has all of this power as some kind of mandate that she should be a ruler or that she should even say, lead an army. Like she's not really interested in doing that. As you mentioned, she's far more interested in learning what it means to love and, will understand part of that is because she has no family left she has to create or find her own family
1: so tara as as she well you can name her whatever you want which i actually really like about this game because it does give us back to that idea of we are at least to some degree in, in control it
0: also drives home the play within a play within a play Element to, to jump way ahead at the very end. If you have named them something else, it will say such and such as Tara Branford. And by the way, I have no idea where the last name Branford came from. I can't. I can't imagine Madonna or Meduina had the last name Branford. Maybe someone in the Empire gave her that name. I don't think it's ever used in game.
1: No, like like the characters of Final Fantasy V and Final Fantasy IV. Their their last names don't have anything to do with the game itself. It's just the thing you know if you have the strategy guide.
0: Right. So it will say at the end, Terra as Terra Branford. It does right. have it right there at the very end. It gives you their full names, which is interesting.
1: It does kind of make me wonder, like, who has the last name Branford in the Empire who helped raise her? Who, did Sid pick it out of a book? The Emperor, who finds her as a baby, certainly didn't give her his last name, where she'd be Terra Gestal, which would be interesting. It would be.
0: Also, a little bit of a plot giveaway, which is probably why it's not that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tara flees Arvis's house into the mines, where she quickly gets lost and then cornered. And then the ground opens up beneath her and she falls. Uh, she hits the ground. She's been through a lot. She tries to get up. The, the screen goes all woozy, like it did when she just got out of bed. And she collapses. Never to be seen again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Another fade to black transition as we... We're treated to a flashback, and we know it's a flashback because the screen goes all yellow. There's this yellow hue going over it, and we get three distinct scenes, one being uh, what Ira was talking about earlier added into the PlayStation version in CG format, but it's just Kefka putting the slave crown on Terra's head and laughing maniacally. The second scene that we see is presumably the event that's discussed throughout the early parts of this game, where Terra has been accused of frying 50 Magitek soldiers with her magical power. We see her burning people to death as Kefka eggs her on and laughs maniacally. Some shades maybe of the mad king or mad king is maybe some shades of this also interesting that it kind of confirms those rumors so we don't see how many people she kills it's clear there's a lot of destruction going on here so we don't know if it's 50 soldiers, but we also know that Kefka is unleashing this power on his own people at this moment, which is a pretty early indication of how insane he is. And then the last scene that we get, it transitions us back to that big castle platform we had seen before in the opening, and we get our first indication of what the Gestalian Empire is really about. Our first lines of dialogue from Emperor Gestal, who stands in front of three generals, one of them clearly being Kefka, the other two we have not yet been introduced to. And he says, We stand on the brink of a major breakthrough in the days to come. We will witness a total revival of magic. It is our destiny and ours alone to take this mystic force and claim what is rightfully ours. With our newfound power, Nothing can stand in our way. And if the dialogue allusions to fascism weren't enough for you, they then begin a salute that looks an awful lot like the Nazi salute while saying while saying essentially Heil Emperor Gestal. Uh, and then we get one last shot back in regular color and real time of Terra still laying there on the cave floor, perhaps indicating to us. Maybe a lot like Captain Marvel, that this wasn't just a flashback that the audience is being treated to, but perhaps a dream or a deeply hidden away memory that she's not sure what to do with, but she has this sense of, yeah, maybe she did do these things. And then our scene shifts back into the house Terra just escaped from. As it appears, Arvis has put in a call to a friend.
1: So Arvis is speaking with a young man named Locke Cole. Again, the last name is not really that important. He asks, uh, you know, y- you got a job for me? What's going on? And Arvis explains there's a, a young woman in-, in need of your help, which Locke has maybe an overly typically male response to.
0: Yeah, well, he, he, he's, he's worried that this might have something to do with that Magitek riding Imperial Witch jeez, man, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's well, if, if somebody had just busted down a town, you know, about in match deck armor, killing a bunch of guards, slinging spells, I could understand how you might be a bit reticent.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it is funny how quickly he turns around though, back to our conversation on civil war and Bucky Barnes and mind control. But the very moment Arvis says, Oh no, there's a slave crown. The empire was controlling our luck immediately turns around and goes oh well screw the empire we have to help her
1: right i imagine slave crowns aren't that unheard of in the game we only hear about terra being controlled by a slave crown but i have to imagine that's that's a thing they've used before
0: i would think so man if we were adapting this that would be a little extra thing i would add an an example of someone else being under the influence of a slave crown
1: Arvis suggests that this mission should be uh, child's play for uh, the greatest thief in the world. <laughs> thief? Or I suppose he prefers the term treasure hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Which he makes clear immediately. I thought it was interesting.
0: Arvis calls it semantic nonsense. I, was like, I didn't remember them using the word semantic. Again, nice job, Ted Woolsey.
1: Good point. Yeah, we, I, I would like to take this moment to say I, I don't understand why people pile on Ted Woolsey. Like I understand some of these can be kind of goofy translations, but he was trying to translate one extraordinarily complex language into another extraordinarily complex language. Okay. Both of these languages have a lot of idioms, uh, a lot of sayings, and not a lot of contact until modern times. So trying to tell this story... Or any of these stories. He started on, what, 4? Yeah. Trying to tell any of these stories and maintain any sort of gravitas when it's meant to be grave. Or lightheartedness when it's meant to be light. I imagine that's got to be extraordinarily difficult. And you want to be careful how much leeway you take for yourself when you're not involved in the writing of the story. Right. And this is a funny scene that the
0: humor plays in large part because of his writing. Some of it's the music, some of it's the really great character animation stuff they were able to do by this point and the -the over-the-top kind of emotes they would give. And so when Locke just gets crazy face over being called a thief as opposed to a treasure hunter, it all works together really well for the desired effect.
1: We do get our second character introduction. Uh, you put it that it would be like the, the description in the in the program. Treasure hunter and trail-worn traveler searching the world over for relics of the past. And then you can name him whatever you want, uh, but his name is Locke. If you want to do a quick character study of him, he's got that sort of tousled hair look. He's got his bandana, a jacket, a sort of worn, scruffy-looking t-shirt. He, he really does look like that trail-worn traveler. And I think it's interesting that they hint at his backstory in searching the world over for relics of the past because he's looking for something very specific.
0: Yeah, that's a, a great little subtle clue. Again, nice job, Ted. And it also reinvokes that word me in the intro, rediscovers. He's looking for relics of the past. It gives even more enrichment to the history of this world and what might be out there if there used to be technology and magic living in in harmony, and now there isn't. He's looking for relics from maybe the world where they did live in harmony. He's, yeah, he's sort of the archetypal rogue, right? A bit witty, a bit Interested in adventure, a bit, a bit full of himself. He's got that Balthier vibe about him. Of course, long before, but there are plenty of characters throughout the series that sort of fit into this archetype. But I agree that that Locke's hidden, at least at first, quite frankly, tragic backstory that lurks right beneath the veneer of this boastful, confident I'm going to be the hero, and he promises every woman he meets that he's going to take care of them.
1: Yeah, that's that's a bit... Uh, like, I understand what they're going for. That's a little bit, I am your hero, I'm the one you're looking for. And I like how Final Fantasy VI brushes him back on this a bit. Yes, He does take that attitude of, uh, I'm here to protect you, and then Princess Leia takes the blaster and takes care of things. Right? I like that idea that just because the boy shows up and says he's the hero doesn't mean that everybody around him buys into it, right and That said, he is quite heroic,
0: right. And then when you learn why he's that way, yeah <laughs> but but yes, uh, it, it, and it doesn't take away from his overall optimistic view. I, I think Locke, you know some people I've heard people argue that he's one of the less important characters of the story. He's he's important for the plot getting started, but maybe he he can tend to get lost by the end of the game. But I I think he's the heart and core of the the optimism of this story. And not everything about this story is optimistic, but he represents, in the face of some pretty harsh tragedy, the ability to be positive. And there's something to be said about that.
1: So you take control of Locke, and you go into the mines, uh, and this is where we finally, I'm I'm fairly certain this is where we start getting into random battles, so you can level up a bit, you can find a save point, and eventually you can find where Terra fell, and Locke hops down into the hole, and being a thief with, I assume, a very high dexterity score, (laughs) uh, manages to land it no problem.
0: Very well balanced.
1: Uh, he's able... So he finds Terra passed out. He's going to uh, take her to safety when he hears the shouting of Narsh soldiers.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because it is difficult at, that you begin this game by murdering soldiers who really are on the good guy. They're at least against the Empire. If you want to call them good guys or not, you know, that can always get a bit tricky. But... You know, you're under a slave crown, so what are you gonna do? This here is like, look, I'd rather not fight you guys, Locke says. You know, I'm I'm not your enemy, but I'm not letting you take this girl. Speaking of Locke as a hero, like that's what makes him a hero. He doesn't always have to protect anyone or save anyone, but right here, right now, he does. And he is thoroughly outnumbered. He's essentially saying, Yeah, you can probably take her, but you're gonna have to kill me first.
1: But then, speaking of being outnumbered, the Mughals arrive. And I really like this because I feel like it speaks to what Mughals are and have been in the past. Especially in Final Fantasy V. In Final Fantasy V, the Mughals lived off in their own little Mughal village in the woods on the far side of the Second World. But one of them had a psychic connection to the princess of Gaul, no, Baal, the Princess of Baal, Goliath's daughter, Krilee. They have always been the this race of creatures that was a little more in tune with the natural world, that was a little more magical. So how is it that the Mughals knew that Locke and Tara would need their help? And why would they bother to help? Like why why do they care what happens to this young woman who just came in and wrecked this town? Who's a slave of the empire. Why are they helping? Do they know that she's got a connection with that esper? Probably they live in these caves. And maybe there are some psychics among them. Maybe there are some who are more spiritual or who are more connected to the earth. uh, and, And the movings of the earth. And possibly the movings of rivers and plains and swamps and everything. I'm referring to Mog. Mog's basically a geomancer.
0: Correct, which is awesome. But Yeah, I've actually seen some people say, you know, this is kind of a deus ex machina or a, a deus ex mugula, if you, if you prefer. The... <laughs> <laughs> I, I apologize. Uh, they do kind of appear without warning and without w- everything you just said being explicit in any way. But I could not agree with you more. I always thought that it was because there was a clear magical link between the Mughals, the Espers, and then therefore spoilers I guess, Terra. But also, this is at the very beginning of the story. Look, if this was the final confrontation and the Mughals all showed up out of nowhere to save you, then I could understand being like, uh, that's a little bit of plot convenience. But here, no, I, I accept that critique zero. This is a great introduction to the Mughals, to specifically as you put it, Mog, in this world, and to their connection to the overall themes,
1: if I were writing the story of the War of the Magi a thousand years ago, Mughals would be oh my strongly God. present yes. they would be or they would be uh, involved in some way in the politics between humans and and espers. They would be very much about understanding the the differences between them and helping to mediate perhaps. Uh, I think some of them would definitely be psychic and so would be able to communicate with some of the espers, maybe be able to communicate across worlds, which would not be out of character for Moogles based upon Final Fantasy V as they can communicate across the world. Yeah, I think that this speaks to all of that without saying any of it overtly.
0: Even in future games, things like Magnet, the idea that they're all kind of connected and that they are the messengers of the Final Fantasy multiverse, just, it's all there. We have another non-introduction introduction of a character here, though. We do meet Mog, and in fact control Mog in battle, and he's very clearly set apart. As you mentioned, he can all do all the geomancy dancing stuff, which sets him apart and makes you immediately want to learn more about him, but we won't for quite some time, and... I think, again, a great way he doesn't get his little program introduction here or a line of dialogue or anything. He's just We're just made aware of him like we're vaguely aware of Leo and Celeste and Kefka at this point, though we've not been introduced to them properly in the story.
1: So what follows is a really neat fight. One of the things that has always frustrated me about uh, RPGs like this is you can only use... A few of your characters at once. But in this fight, there's this sort of maze and uh, the, the enemies will come at you through this maze and you basically have to block off all these things. Uh, and then when one of the enemy characters gets to one of your groups of characters, so you've got three groups of characters, uh, mostly Moogles plus Locke, then you will, you will go into an RPG battle and you'll do, you'll do your RPG battle stuff. But you get to use 12 different characters, now, 11 of them are Mughals, and only one of them has a special ability, but it's really neat to be able to use all your characters like this, and you'll get to do that a few more times throughout the game, which I love. I love being able to use all or almost all of the characters uh, in a fight like this. It's I also think it's noteworthy that each of the Mughals gets their own kind of weapon. Like one of them has a spear and one of them has like a throwing star and one of them's got, I think, a big old flail. Like they've got all these different kinds of really cool weapons.
0: Yeah, it was funny as you were talking about it there too. I was thinking, I wonder why they didn't do this more often. And I was like, oh, it's probably because none of the other games have casts of characters that are this big. But you're you're right. It's such a great idea to, you, you split up your team, but they all get to be involved. And it makes the battle feel huge and epic, especially the one, the next one we'll see.
1: Right, right. And I, I wish they had done something like this for 4 and 5. Uh, they kind of do it in 10 because you can swap people in and out of combat, yeah, which I that love. Pro- yeah, that I absolutely love that.
0: Me too. Yeah, that, that problem ends up taking care of itself.
1: Between the Mughals and uh, one of the greatest thieves slash treasure hunters in the world, you're able to defeat the soldiers of Narsh. Locke thanks the Mughals. The Mughals go back into their cave. He picks up Terra and hurries her through the caves of Narsh to a secret entrance, or ex- exit, a secret hole in the wall. I guess <laughs> it's a hole in the wall, yeah. He gets outside and then Terra wakes up. She seems to have been somewhat conscious through this because she says, you saved me. And he says, well, you know, the Moogles. Yeah. I love they, that he gives deserve- credit to the Moogles, man. He does. I, yeah, because he could have totally done the the smarmy, conceited guy thing here and be like, yes. Yes, I did. And I have a square jaw and a very deep voice. Uh, but he doesn't. He gives credit to the Moogles, as he should. And then he does this neat little... I, I feel like this is more for the player, but... Here's a secret entrance. Don't forget about it. Right. That's clever
0: exposition through dialogue, though. It really is because we, the player, do actually need to know that as much as her, the character.
1: Right, right. Uh, And then there's a, you could try to go back. So you're basically at the entrance to the town now and you can try to go back in. But Narsh soldiers will show up and be like, hey, aren't you, uh..." and then you run away real quick. (laughs) There's also this uh, building here that you can get into, and this is the school, we've talked about this before, where there's these, all these people who are experts on the world, and it's basically the tutorial. Like, here's how save points work, and here's how items work, and here's how battle works, and status effects, and so on and so forth. Uh, and once you've done that, if you are so inclined, learned about the world, there's always a few items in places like this too, which can be useful. But once you do that, it's time to go south. So so Locke is going to take Terra somewhere safe. We get back into the uh, protecting the, the damsel in distress here a little bit. He's going to take him to a buddy down south. So very quickly from the icy reaches of the north, uh, you find your way to the Figaro Desert. There's plenty of opportunity here to level up if you are so inclined. Uh, and then you find a big stone castle in the middle of a sandy waste desert.
0: that's it for this episode thanks for listening and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us feel free to let us know what we missed got wrong or should have mentioned you can find us on facebook and twitter at ff weekly pod or you can email us at final fantasy weekly at gmail.com we're also now on patreon and while the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org or on patreon if you want to download it on your regular podcast services you can do so for as little as one dollar a month join us next time When we meet the King of Figaro and discuss his troubling ways with women, learn of the seduction of an evil clown, and finally find The Returner's Hideout.